This is Dennis Rundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Emmanuel Von Lee. He is an award-winning filmmaker whose work has been featured on National Geographic, PBS, The New York Times, The New Yorker, Al Jazeera, exhibited at the Smithsonian and screened at festivals worldwide. Uh, he is also the uh, director of the Spiritual Ecology uh, Fellowship. Uh, Emmanuel, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you both. Uh, Emmanuel, I um, want to talk to you about your uh, Global Oneness Project, the spiritual ecology work you do, and the filmmaking. Uh, but first, give us a little background uh, about your own life and how you came uh, to to the work you do. And uh, we know your your father, uh, Llewellyn, is a very well known Sufi teacher, um, and so you are probably raised in that tradition. Is that correct? Yes, that that is correct. Um, so I was born in London. Um, my father is English, and. Uh, we lived in a house uh, with his teacher, uh, a woman named Irina Tweedy, who in the late 50s traveled to India and met a Sufi master. And uh, he asked her to bring uh, this particular tradition of Sufism, which is uh, the Naqshbandi Mujahideen tradition, because in Sufism there are different lineages, all with di different practices. Um, and she brought this tradition back to the West. And my father was one of her first students, and she was somewhat elderly, and my father bought a house at the time in North London and invited her to live downstairs. And my mom, who was also one of her students, my parents met um, as students of Mrs. Tweedy, uh, uh, was looking after her. So I grew up in kind of a modern-day ashram in North London where every day uh, the house um, and she lived downstairs in the basement apartment or the first floor apartment, uh, was open for meditation and satsang. And so we had anywhere between 50 and 100 people every day in our house meditating, there meeting with the teacher, uh, having this spiritual discussion, sharing dreams, which is uh, a part of the uh, particular Sufi practices that we, uh, from our tradition. So I grew up, um, you know, in this very traditional uh, spiritual environment, yet, in the middle of a you know an urban setting in North London, right? Um, and uh, so Sufism was kind of uh, what I started breathing from from the first moment I was born. Um, it was around me uh, all day and night. Right, Emmanuel. Yeah, go. I wanted to ask when you were a young kid and that was going on in your household. Did you take to it right away, or was there some resistance toward it? Did it seem odd to you? Did it seem normal? And what what type of spiritual practices did you engage in as a young kid? Um, so no, it definitely seemed normal. I think that when it's around you uh, all the time when you're young, you you, you think that's how um, everybody lives. I think it wasn't right. until I started going to school that I realized, oh, my friends' parents didn't meditate or pray like the, my parents did. Um, I started practicing, I think, when I was uh, five or six years old. Um, so I would go downstairs and I would meditate for two or three hours. Um, with uh, everybody who was down there. And I did that for a few years until I uh, wanted to spend my after schools with my friends riding bikes and skateboarding in, in the neighborhood. Uh, so, and then again, I was, I guess, around 11 that I picked up the practice again. My father would make me sit and meditate with him twice a day. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I, I, as I got older, of course, then I thought it was not normal. And like, <laughs> 
like most kids did go through a bit of rebellious stage where I just, I wanted to have a normal family. I wanted to have normal, (laughs) normal life. When I looked around my, you know, (laughs) for my peers, they didn't live the same life I did. So (laughs) I guess between the ages of, you know, 11 and 14, I went through a bit of a rebellious phase where I was upset and, and angry that I had to you know, be part of this world, which I felt was forcing me into uh, places I didn't want to be. Um, but at the age of 14, I uh, shifted my perspective and became much more um, interested in in living that life uh, and, and deepening my own practice. And that's been the case since the age of 14. And eventually, uh, you obviously made your way to uh, America. And uh, I know your father uh, lives in Northern California, so do you. Um, I was surprised in looking at your bio to uh, find that you uh, had gone to the Berklee College of Music in Boston, which uh, I used to live down the street from there. And uh, that's a great school for for jazz and uh, music composition. And uh, tell us about that and, and how that informed your spiritual life, if it did, and how you got into filmmaking. Um, my family was not a musical family. Uh, you know, we li- my, I grew up, list- my parents listened to a few records here and there, but honestly, they had to be quiet a lot of the time because people were downstairs meditating. So we didn't <laughs> have a lot of music in the house. And my parents were, didn't condition themselves that musical. And uh, I was started getting interested in music when I was about eight or nine. I started playing the cello. Um, and then we moved to America when I was 11. Uh, uh, my father was uh, instructed to kind of take the tradition to America and open a, a spiritual center here. And he, at that point, was becoming the successor of Mrs. Tweedy and taking over responsibility of the tradition. And uh, we moved to a small town in, 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 in Northern California on the coast. So quite quite different environment to London. Uh, and that time I got into playing bass. I think when I was sixth grade, I showed up a uh, small school and there was music class. They said, anybody, what instruments do you play? I said, I play the cello. They said, great, you can play the bass. And they put a bass in my hand. <laughs> and I kind of took to it and uh, really enjoyed the instrument. And um, within a year or two, became really serious about uh music and specifically jazz. I, somebody gave me a Miles Davis record, I think when I was 12 or 13 mm-hmm. and I fell in love with it and, um, completely immersed myself in, 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 in that medium and just listened to jazz records night and day and, uh, practiced, transcribed, played. And I think when I was 15, I started playing professionally um, it's kind of a funny thing that there's, you know, there's not enough bass players out there. Uh, and once, once you play the bass and some people know about it, then you get hired for gigs. So I was out playing in nightclubs and all sorts of venues when I was 15 with, you know, much older, much more competent musicians. Um, and I spent most of my time le- learning on the handstand, learning songs, learning repertoire, learning how to improvise, you know, <laughs> when I shouldn't necessarily have been out there performing. Uh, but I loved it. I think it had to me, I love the discipline of practicing. I love the possibility of being able to improvise within a framework that, you know, there's so much you have to learn to be able to play jazz well in order to be able to freely express yourself and improvise. And I loved all the things you needed to have to learn in order to be able to do that. So I guess if you want to compare it to how it, uh, related to my own spiritual practice, I felt like the discipline you have to have 
in one's personal practice, whether it's meditation or other uh, practices, in order to be able to experience a sense of freedom, to me made sense in relation to jazz and improvisation. Um, ended up dropping out of high school when I was 16 to pursue my studies in music um, and play, uh, and ended up you know, going to Berkeley College of Music and studying improvisation and composition, and uh, played um, with many great jazz artists for a number of years, led my own groups, released records, um, and had a what was, you know, a somewhat promising jazz career in that small idiom that is jazz in America today. Right. Uh, um, and then I, in my mid twenties, uh, I felt the call to be more closely connected to the work that my father was doing outwardly. Um, you know, he was writing a lot about what was happening in the world. Um, you know, uh, what role spiritual values and uh, spiritual consciousness can play in in how we both understand the problems that we're facing and find ways to move forward and ended up transitioning into filmmaking over a few years. An opportunity came up to work on a film. I took it. I love the medium. Um, to me, there were similarities between documentary filmmaking and uh, working in, in jazz. You know, you've got to improvise. You're always <coughs> covering new things, working with new people and the same idea of kind of learning on the bandstand that um, applied for me here. Uh, Emmanuel, um, do, do you do the music for your documentaries? And, and where, 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 do you still put a significant amount of time into practicing your instrument, or you are totally absorbed in the, the filmmaking now? I, I don't play uh, professionally anymore and haven't for, gosh, I'm almost about uh -huh. eight, eight years now. Um, and I don't practice too much. Occasionally, I'll pick up the instrument, but I don't have as much time as I used to. Um, I do compose some of the music for the films I make, not all of them. Um, I collaborate with, uh, actually was a very good friend of mine uh, at Berkeley, who's now an acclaimed film composer in Hollywood. And um, so we collaborate on some of the projects together. And uh, to segue into your uh, the filmmaking and the spiritual content in it, <clears throat> I was looking at uh, some of the uh, titles of your, of your films, and uh, it looks like, you know, there's a, a, a kind of mission to your filmmaking and um, uh, a, a kind of common theme that may run through it. Could you discuss what, what your purpose as a filmmaker is and how it fits into your spiritual life? Sure. Um, you know, to me, the essence of my spiritual practice can't be different from how I live my life and what I do with it. I don't want to have a practice where I only sit on a cushion meditating um, uh, you know, after business hours, so to speak. Um, to me, spiritual practice is something that pra is, is, is practiced every second of every day. And so from the beginning, you know, when I played jazz, I still viewed it in that capacity. Um, maybe it wasn't as direct as, as it is now in my filmmaking, but I still connected uh, to it in that way. Um, and my filmmaking is very much about how can we use the power of story um, how can we capture the voices of people who's, who aren't heard in the mainstream media to, to express what is happening in our world and to examine what are the uh, underlying crises that aren't often discussed? And I'm not talking purely about you know the spiritual, uh, the, the, excuse me, the, uh, the ecological or social crises, but the spiritual crisis that is underlying those issues. And so I feel that my mission, if you want to call it. A mission is to try and 
capture um, sto- uh, the stories of, of people or places around the world and share what's happening in a way that can get people to think about what this underlying crisis is and what are these deeper issues that we need to look at and how can we re-examine our lives both individually and collectively to best respond in a meaningful way to what is happening. Ted, tell us about the uh, Spiritual Ecology Fellowship that you direct. And is that directly related to your filmmaking? Uh, that isn't directly related to my filmmaking, no. Um, but there are crosso- there is crossover. I mean, a lot of the, the films that I've made explore uh, themes related to spiritual ecology. And spiritual ecology, of course, is a very big you know, field, emerging field, if you will, um, you know, with this kind of basic fundamental principle at its essence, which is that everything in life is sacred and interconnected. And a lot of my films have been exploring that in different ways, whether it's talking about, you know, how different cultures are living that and the challenge that they're facing um, as a result of the encroach of the modern world uh, on their on their cultures and systems. Um, but the, the fellowship is really a new project that emerged in the last few years uh, as both my father's work and my work um, took a direction um, towards uh, spiritual ecology and kind of trying to articulate what that field is. And the fellowship is a program where we um, offer uh, up to 10 emerging young leaders a place in a program where they will uh, have an opportunity for deep learning, uh, exposure to mentors and teachers working in this field, and give them a chance to apply what they've learned into practice in creating projects which offer innovative ways to um, put spiritual ecology and its principles into action. And the fundamental principles of spiritual ecology that we're working with is um, reverence and interconnection, kind of the, the worldview that is everything is sacred and must be revered and everything is interconnected. And then to act with that understanding through compassion, service, and stewardship. So we're giving the people we're working with in the program an opportunity to explore that in both you know, uh, a philosophical and spiritual capacity and then also a practical capacity as they um, engage with these ideas in a variety of ways. Um, Emmanuel, the, uh, we're, ha- we're recording this interview on January 25th of 2017. Um, we're five days into the Trump administration, and um, he has already taken certain steps that uh, feel ominous to many of us who care about the environment. Um, how you're, you're involved in spiritual ecology. How have you reacted to this? How have the people around you reacted? Uh, what are your concerns, if any, and what would you propose uh, we do about it? <laughs> it's a, a, a small question. Oh, gosh, yeah. I think that, like, many people around this country and around the world, there's a tremendous amount of uh, shock and despair and... Um, an overwhelming feeling of uh, of you know what you know of uncertainty that's gripping everybody, and I I definitely have felt that um, you know I, something I think about a lot is how are we going to respond to this crisis because it it really is an incredible crisis that we're now dealing with. I mean, many of the issues are not new, but what's being brought to the surface with this current administration and this agenda um, offers, gosh, a, a much more uh, challenging <laughs> view uh-huh. of how it's actually going to turn out. I mean, uh, there's so much out there in the media about 
responding to this and offering all sorts of analysis of what's really happening. You know, the shadow side of America had to um, be revealed at some time. You can't sweep everything under the rug forever. You know, um, obviously globalization and its impacts on people, et cetera. But, you know, I try and take the long view. Um, I've always wanted to try and take the long view. Uh, you know, before Trump was elected, this country, this world was was dealing with tremendous, overwhelming challenges that looked unsurmountable to address, to be perfectly honest. And I think now it's just even more, more in our face that that is the case and whatever hope we thought we might have might be dashed. Um, but I do have hope um, that we can create change on all the levels we need to, but I think it's going to take a lot longer and be a lot harder to implement that. And I think that it's going to require a lot of resilience on every level from people who want to have a world that their children can actually live and breathe in and create a life that is grounded in something other than a materialistic greed-based society. Um, And I think it's just, we're living in a time where the rules aren't so clear anymore. You know, I think the the in quote alternative fact reality is just almost a surface level uh, materialization of that. Um, but everything is on the table. Things are changing so fast, and I think that's what happens when the world starts to rip apart. And that's what's been happening for quite some time. You know, we've been abusing and destroying our world for a long time and now we're just starting to feel it in a much more divisive capacity or divisive way (laughs) because of what's happening in washington right right i I mean i think that uh you know you take a few steps forward and i think people maybe were assuming we'd continue uh, just moving forward but what seems to happen usually is there are steps backward and you can't give up at that time you have to keep moving forward uh, let, let me, I have a question though. Uh, I love documentary films and I look forward to seeing your films. I hope I can get them online or whatever. Uh, but I, I always think, how do people fund documentary films? They, they don't attract as big an audience usually and uh, the funding of them must be a challenge. How, how do you go about it? Uh, I think that, you know, documentary has blown up in the last few years. There's a lot more films being made in that uh-huh. in that genre. Um, you know, the, the cost of making films has dropped dramatically as the equipment became cheaper, the editing software became cheaper, and all these different platforms to then share and release that those stories have multiplied. Um, so it's a, in some ways a kind of a golden age of documentary um, where you don't need as much money as you used to to be able to produce films. Right. Um, usually documentaries are not made by large crews of people. It's one or two people, maybe three or four, working hot, long, hard hours. Um, you know, the director is also the producer, is also the cinematographer, is also the editor, is also, you know, the person getting coffee. So it, it, it it's, it's a different kind of uh, approach to filmmaking than, than uh, narrative fiction or TV. Um, and there's more and more interest, I think, in supporting those stories. So people... As, as those platforms have emerged where those kind of stories can find uh, an outlet, people have shown that there's interest in, in, in watching those stories. It used to be that you had only a few outlets where stories could be shown, whether it was you know a major network or maybe HBO, um, PBS, but now they're everywhere. Um, and you can have your own platforms as well as, these, as work with the established ones. So you can cr- 
connect your audiences and, and build communities around that, which is something we've done for more than 10 years, uh, which has allowed us to kind of build an audience, build a relationship with, with uh, communities all around the world, as well as, you know, through traditional distributors and broadcasters. So it gives us a platform to, to share our stories, which makes it easier then to raise funds for, for creating those films. Interesting, because um, um, it's kind of a democratization of filmmaking right. made possible by technology, similar, similar to the way uh, book publishing has been democratized um, at, at some uh, challenge to quality and uh, reliability. So it's probably similar in the filmmaking world where you don't have the uh, curators that uh, you know we used to have. But more and more people have access to making films. And it's a very similar thing with spirituality. <laughs> to bring it back to spirituality, uh, there's you know, always been a democratization of spiritual practice, taking it out of the hands of uh, large institutions and making uh, teachings available to more and more people. Which, which brings me to a, a, a question. Um, some of this is generational. Uh, I, I see in your uh, bio that you were born in 1979, which makes you uh, a few years. Thirty-eight, yeah. <laughs> a few years no, shy 30, of forty. Thirty-something, thirty-six, <laughs> something. But not yet forty. Um, so how you're more in touch? You're in touch with a generation. Dennis and I are of your father's generation. Um, what? Um, this the spiritual crisis we've been talking about and uh, the ramifications of current uh, political situation. How are people in your generation responding to it? I want hope. I want hope for the future. So tell me, you know, how things are, uh, how spiritually aware and environmentally aware are your uh, uh, cohort? That's a great question. You know, I think that I think that I have a tremendous amount of hope in this new generation because I feel that they do not separate out their own spiritual practice or their desire for spiritual practice from what they see around them and the, and the, and the challenges we're facing. So for them, you know, environmental awareness and spiritual awareness are often very linked. Um, and they, they see a spiritual practice in walking out onto the streets and marching in protest. Mm. Um, they see a spiritual practice in, in deciding how they're going to live their lives and the choices they're going to make, whether that's what they eat or what they buy, or what they um, dis decide to do with their careers as, as, as a spiritual practice. So I think there's much more integration in the new generation, in, in my generation and, and millennial generation than in your generation, where I felt like, feel from my observations, is there was an emerging spiritual uh, school coming from the east to america in the 60s and 70s to the west and it, it was not necessarily integrated in a societal way that i feel this new generation is is trying to so i i feel very hopeful about that i feel like they're not interested in just pursuing a path of self-growth and that is something i'm so happy to to see because i think we don't have time for only self-growth now where we can leave life behind and focus on our own personal spiritual development. It has to be done in the midst of responding to the world that we're living in. Um, and we need uh, actively engaged spiritual citizens at this time more than ever. Right. Uh, what are you working on now? What, what film and what subject matter? 
oh, uh, I'm just starting to work on a new feature, which is a little too early in its development to really talk about. Um, and but, but, then but we're the, 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 the emphasis, uh, the subject matter always uh, touches at least upon spirituality. Is that right? This film's actually directly about spiritual ecology, mm -hmm. but uh, it's just in its in its nascent days, so I'm a little reticent to uh, to talk about it too much. Um, and then I'm doing a film. We're doing a film, uh, a shorter film, maybe a 20 30 minute film on this wonderful tradition in the northwest of the U.S. Um, uh, these intertribal canoe journeys that happen on an annual basis, uh -huh. where native communities um, who always practiced uh, uh, and, and traveled by canoe um, uh, have uh, revived this, this tradition um, of annually visiting a host community to practice the potlatch ceremony. Oh, and wow. they travel wow. by canoe from all these places in the Northwest to a central location. So it's, it's, it's a it's a remarkable uh, movement because it isn't just about, you know, those five days of, or three days of traveling from their community to host community. It's all the months of preparation of connecting with this tradition, reviving this ancient tradition, how it is provi providing opportunity and hope for the younger generation, often in environments where they're dealing with tremendous challenges. Um, wow. Well, I, look so, forward, uh, I look forward to seeing that. I mean, that's a, a tremendous subject matter. And I think this is the type of information that needs to be disseminated, that people need to understand, uh, especially young people. Uh, I mean, a big part of the battle to keep the world, uh, you know, to, to promote spiritual ecology is education, is exposure, is getting people uh, the, the information that will inspire them to, to do the, the right things. And uh, there's so much out there now, sometimes it's hard to uh, have the filters to, to find out what's real and what isn't. But anyway, we're, yeah. we're excited about that. When it comes out, we should maybe do uh, another show and, and uh, specifically discuss the film. Yeah. I, I remember reading about potlatches in, in anthropology classes, you know, 40 years ago, and I always wanted to attend one. <laughs> um, Emmanuel, tell us about the Global Oneness Project. Sure. So the Global Oneness Project, um, gosh, we started that back in 2005, 2006, I guess. So it's over 10 years old. Um, and it's an online multimedia platform, uh, a collection of stories and companion uh, educational material and lesson plans for educational use primarily in, in North America. Um, and it's based around the idea that the power of stories to connect people to important issues and to engage them into deep discussion and learning about the most critical issues of the day um, is something that is, is, is needed um, in educational settings. And what we found is that you know, over the years is that a story can come alive in a classroom in the, in the teacher's hands in a remarkable way. It's like it takes on a new life. You share a 10, 15 minute film, you read an article, you look at a, a, a multimedia piece or a photo essay. And if you're just watching it or viewing it on your computer at home, you may learn something and, and connect to it. Um, but in, in a classroom, it, it takes on a whole new life. And so we really dedicated this whole uh, organization and its, and its focus to trying to support teachers uh, and give them valuable materials and resources to engage students at the high school level in these kinds of issues and stories um, so that they can connect on a, on, a, on a global level and explore what being a global citizen really looks like. So we have a huge library of stories and companion education material that we distribute to you know, tens of thousands of schools around the U.S., um, with the hope that story can be a powerful vehicle for change in the lives of young people. Great. Go ahead, Phil. 
Is there uh, and is a common theme to the Global Oneness Project what it sounds like that to, yes, to sort of bring bring attention to the. Uh, I always think there's a difference between just interconnectedness and oneness, and you chose the word oneness, which is very consistent with uh, Sufi uh, spirituality for a reason. I assume is that correct. That is correct. And, and yes, the name does represent what our primary focus is. Um, so in Sufism, one of the central tenets is the belief in the oneness of being. And then interconnection, interconnectedness is, is an aspect of that. Mm. Um, and so the stories, the companion lesson plans, they may talk about you know, social issues, environmental issues, political issues, economic issues, culture issues. But there's always an emphasis on trying to show this oneness that we all share and how that needs to be a consciousness that we, con that we actively engage in and use as a reference point as we understand how to live in this world at this time. Right. Uh, I have one last question for you, Emmanuel, and that is, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic for the future? <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, for a certain answer. But, but go ahead. <laughs> I think I'm a pessimistic optimist. Um, <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I, Explain I, that. I mean, I think I, I think I want. I'm a realist. You know, uh -huh. and I've seen a lot, and I've been to a lot of places, and I've talked to a lot of people who are on the front lines of climate change, or are at you know what I call the edges of the world, um, off the beaten tracks, you know, far away from our urban centers. We're often dealing with the issues that we hear about, you know, in a direct way every day of their lives as their, you know, their houses sink because of rising seas or their food sources disappear or their rivers are polluted or their children and families are dying because uh, of that pollution. Um, and what I found is in my experience of being in those communities there, I've seen the most vital and powerful hope um, come to life. As people say, I'm not going to accept this reality and I am going to fight for a future that is grounded in what I believe to be true and to be right. And that has always inspired me to get past those moments where pessimism um, and futility can take over. And I am optimistic about the future. I, I am optimistic about the younger generation. I am optimistic that we can find a way through the current crises and this tremendous challenge we're going to be dealing with over the next few four years, the next 40 years. Um, but I am here, I'm in this life and this body, and I think I should be doing whatever I can to support, you know, the changes that we need to have uh, come to life in our, in our world. Right. Well, you've made me more optimistic, and I uh, thank you for that, and I appreciate all your efforts, and I uh, hope uh, that you're right about your generation because it's uh, the torch has been passed. <laughs> and so I hope I hope you you know all of wish you great success and all all that you're doing. And we want to thank you for being with us, giving us this time today. Well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Great, thank you. All 